Advent, the season when we look back and seek to recreate in our own spirits the anticipation of the people of God who had been promised over and over again since the beginning of Scripture, and really since Genesis 3, that a son would be born, a Savior would come to deliver his people. I maybe shouldn't ask for a show of hands, but I think I'm going to. How many of you, growing up, especially adults, peeked inside your stocking or inside a present when you're growing up? Tried to sneak a peek of what mom and dad are giving you? I confess, I'm with you. I remember very vividly. We actually were living in Bailey at the time, up uh, 285, and had uh, several Christmas trees in the house and you know presents under a couple of them. And I remember thinking, man, there's that really cool-looking present under that tree. And I'm pretty sure, the ones that say they're from Santa, you know, are always the fun ones or the best ones. So I thought, I'm going to, mom and dad are gone, I'm going to unwrap it, wrap it up, tape it up, and see if it's a really good present. I don't even remember what it is now, but I'm sure it was good, and I don't think my parents ever found out until now I'm confessing publicly, and if they listen to this, they'll know. But isn't this what we're trying to recapture again in our spirits of this season of Advent, of when the Savior would come? And even now, as God's people, as the church, we're anticipating, we're waiting for His second Advent. And this shapes our thinking and our understanding even of Christmas. There's a reason that we intentionally set our focus on the meaning of Christmas and Advent every Sunday of the month of December. As the day approaches where we celebrate the birth of Christ, it's fitting that we sort of reset our minds and reset our focus on what this is all about. And today's lesson, the lesson of Advent, focusing on peace and specifically the Prince of Peace, I think will reshape our focus today as we go out in this world and we live our lives this week amongst secular people, people who do not know the Prince of Peace, people who are celebrating fun and good times and family, but really with no hope. In fact, this past week I was at an event and just caught a glimpse of a video of an interview of asking people what Christmas means to them. And I'm sure you've seen these before. What does Christmas mean to you? And sadly, several of the people responded with things like, I really haven't celebrated Christmas and I don't really know what Christmas is about and I really have not experienced any hope for a long time. And unfortunately, the consumerism and the materialism of our world and culture covers over the deep need that Advent and Christmas is supposed to highlight for us, that all of us in our humanity and our fallen nature are in desperate need of a Savior. And without Him, we are without hope in this world. So this morning, as the Durans have already read for us, we're going to look at those two texts as well as two more, speaking specifically of the Prince of Peace. So, Look with me in your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. And our main focus is, of course, on verse 6 and 7. But here's the focus of our sermon this morning. The Prince of Peace. He is the one who can actually make peace. He is the one who can actually bring peace. And here in Isaiah 9, this Prince of Peace is introduced for us. Isaiah 9. Verses 6 and 7 is what we read. But let's go back and read verse 2 and 3. 
to set the stage and set the context. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You, speaking to God directly, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And that language might be a little bit uh, vague to us, but what is he speaking of? He's speaking of the celebration, the victorious joy of when the harvest comes in, of all the food and all the blessings of the land, but then also their gladness and their celebration when there's victory in battle. Now, people are anticipating this. Isaiah is anticipating this. The prophecy is anticipating a time. In fact, the wording, if you are listening and reading carefully, it's being said as if it's already happened. There's an anticipation that this is such a sure thing, it's such a sure prophecy that it's already happened for the people of God. Now look at some of the blessings that come. Verse 4. Here is why there's such joy and such gladness with the people of God. For the yoke of His burden and the staff for His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse 5. Here's a second explanation of why there is such joy and gladness. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. They're victorious over these others and there is no need for their own. But then verse 6 and 7, the text that we read this morning, the climax of the passage, the prophecy, here is the fundamental explanation of why there is such joy and how this victory is coming about and how this blessing is coming to the people of God. For. For to us. And we read that in English and we think, ah, see, the emphasis is here, it's on us, the focus is on us. But it's not. In the Hebrew, the, the, the words, a child is born, a son is given, those are first, those are most prominent. The focus is on the king, the coming prince. Yes, he comes to us. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And then we go on, and we'll get to those names in just a moment. But here's the point of this section. This Messiah King is the Prince of Peace. And here's what His rule, when He comes, He will actually create a society and a people who are living and dwelling at peace with God and with one another. And why would this be such a tangible need to the people of God? These are the Israelites. They're facing oppression. They're facing the judgment of God for their disobedience. They're facing and are already experiencing alienation from His blessing. They're actually under the judgment of God for their sin and opposing nations are coming in to destroy them. The prophet reaches back to the time of Exodus and the great deliverance of God's people, verse 4. He reminds them of how, just as in the past, this yoke of burden was broken and the staff was crushed and the rod of his presser was taken away. And he reminds us of this small story that many of us may not even remember, the story of Midian and Gideon. Remember Gideon and his not-so-mighty army? But yet the mighty victory that God gave in such a way that they would only give praise to the God who delivered them. 
See, these people, they understand that they are under the simple reality of God's judgment and they're under the oppression of evil men and kingdoms. But we don't need to spend too much time there in the darkness because I think we all sense that. We all sense the the condemnation and the, the difficulty that we experience in this life as a result of our sin and the oppression of humanity over another group of humanity. And the text pushes us forward into verse 3, and there's that rejoicing. And the increase of joy, and, the, and the, like this is a great victory, and the people begin to exclaim it. And then verse 6, why? How does it come about? In the most amazing way. We've read this passage so many times, it's no longer surprising to us. But this is why we come back to it, right? Here's how this victory comes about. Here's how this liberty comes about. Here's how this salvation comes about through a child. Through a baby. This baby will be the king. Now look at how the prophet describes this one who's to be born. His name shall be called, or his name is called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're familiar with these terms through Handel's Messiah and other Christmas songs that we sing, but let's just take for a moment and meditate on these terms. He is the Wonderful Counselor. All of these are royal terms. All of these are kingly terms. The wonderful counselor, the divine counselor. No one's wisdom can match his, not even the wisdom of Solomon. Why? Because even Solomon's wisdom was earthly, but his will be divine. All can go to him for counsel. All can go to him for wisdom. All will be satisfied by hearing his voice. He is the mighty God. He is the mighty God. This describes His person and His power, right? This clearly identifies this child who is to come is, is and will be God Himself. He is God. Third, the everlasting Father. Now, don't confuse this term with the Trinitarian label of Father, Son, and Spirit. This is speaking of the kingly fatherly relationship of a, of a powerful ruler over his people where he comforts and cares for his people. This is a title of relationship of how he relates to his people and cares for them and provides for them. And of course, don't forget the adjective everlasting. This is permanent. This is permanent. And then the final description, which is our focus. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the ruler who will bring peace. He's the only one who can actually create peace. He's the only one who can bring it about. Bringing peace between God and man and bringing peace between man and man. But look at verse 7 as well. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. Once this child comes, the government, his power, his kingdom will continue to grow and his peace will continue to grow throughout all the world. This reminds us of the prophecies in the book of Daniel about the small stone, the small rock that grows into a great mountain and destroys all the other kingdoms. He will rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it. Verse 7, at the end, with justice and with righteousness, 
from this time forth, from the time that He comes forevermore, this is what will happen. And the final phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The passionate commitment of God to His people. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. The zeal of the Lord of armies. Don't miss that language. The Lord of hosts. He will do this. He will fight for this. He will make this happen. He will not be thwarted in His plan to bring about this ruling peace. What a great commitment of promise to God's people. And if you were there, wouldn't you be like, yes, this is great news. This is good news. But have you ever looked through the rest of the book of Isaiah? We're in chapter 9, and there's like 56 more chapters to come. And then you still have all the rest of the Old Testament. And ultimately you end up with, 700 years about before the birth of Jesus. They're waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting and longing for this to come to fruition. Which brings us, of course, to Luke chapter 2. So turn there with me to Luke chapter 2 as the Durans have already read for us this morning, Luke 2. And they read verses 10 through 14 for us, but we're going to look at a few verses before that as well. Here is the point of, of how Luke and Isaiah relate the arrival of this Prince of Peace changes everything. All history turns on his birth. And when he is born, this reign of peace that was prophesied begins. Look with me at verse 8 of chapter 2 of Luke. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I don't think it's a coincidence that these angels, or this angel, and then the subsequent ones, and this message, and the birth of Christ, all happen at night. I don't think it's a mere coincidence. God is never passive in His revelation. He's never passive in His action. He's always intentional. And He chooses to have the Son born at night and to the message to be delivered at night. And look at the language. The glory of the Lord shone around them. It's as if out of the darkness bursts this light. Remember the passage in Isaiah? People walking in darkness under the shadow of gloom. They've seen a great light. And this is why we use the imagery of candles at Christmas time and why you and I put lights on our house as a symbolic way of remembering this is what it's all about. The light is shining in the darkness. And the angels show up with these others and they commend the shepherds and they say, don't fear, but but rather trade in your fear for great joy. Why? Because there's good news that we're proclaiming to you. 
The glory of the Lord shines, and, and this light is this visible manifestation of the power and the mighty God who's here, and that God Himself is with this child who will be born. And why should they rejoice and not fear when they're in the presence of the angel of God? Why should they not fear when the light of God is being poured out on them? And this is a fearful thing to come into the messenger of God, let alone God Himself. And the angels cry out, Because we proclaim good news to you. Good news. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And here is the connection with Isaiah clearly. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's interesting that the angels don't give the shepherds the actual name Jesus. That's the parents' job. Here the angels give the titles. They give the descriptions of who this king will be. Again, this relates back clearly to Isaiah's prophecy. He is the Lord. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the Messiah. Yes, we have come to use all of these as titles as names for who our savior is, Jesus Christ. But technically, they're titles that describe his rule and his reign. And this is the good news. The king is here. Finally, after 700 years, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And he says, the angels say to them, there is great joy for all the people. First, of course, we know that this message comes to Israel themselves, the faithful remnant that is anticipating the coming king. But we know as Luke unfolds in his gospel that this one, the Savior, came to seek and save the lost of all the world. So, so we see as the gospels unfold, the New Testament, that people who will find this king to be of great joy and who will bring peace to them, they're people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, Jews and Gentiles. But why exactly is the birth of this child good news? Remember that language, the the Lord of hosts? His zeal will make this happen. And now here, the angel and a host, the Lord of the host of the angel armies, and his army of angels come not to bring war, but to declare the glory of this one who is to be born. One commentator said it this way, here is the good news for us. God's people is not, God's peace is not given merely to people who try to exercise goodwill towards one another. But God's peace is given to those who are recipients of God's grace and His favor. This is the meaning of the text. Peace to all those on whom the favor of God falls. This is the language of grace. This is a language of love. This is a language of salvation. That God has come as Savior to save His people from their sins.
Then we see the text moves on. We'll move to the next gospel, John 14. Look with me in John 14, verse 27. We haven't quite yet have, our, have all of our questions answered. How will this peace come about? How will we actually experience this peace? We, those pieces are yet to be filled in by the work and the life of this child who is born. But here in John 14, verse 27, Jesus is now fully grown and ministering to his disciples, his followers, and he's preparing them for his departure. They don't quite yet fully understand the cross and his entire work yet. But they do know that as they follow Jesus, difficult times will come. So Jesus says to them in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, the Prince of Peace is the only one who can promise true peace. Only he can give the peace that actually brings true reconciliation between God and man. And once his disciples, once his followers receive this peace, as they follow him, as they believe him, as they repent of their sin and turn to him and let them be his, their king and lord, he says, all of you will receive my peace. This peace of God is described in Romans and Philippians. They have peace with God. They have the peace of God. And this peace would guard their lives, all who follow Him, from the fear of death or the fear of alienation from God or the fear of oppression and persecution that they'll face as they follow Jesus. So He comforts His disciples and He comforts us today He says, this is the peace I leave with you through the presence of the Spirit, which they don't yet quite understand, will come and give you peace. One commentator said this way, when Jesus said he would give his peace to his disciples, much more was involved than just simply living a quiet life. He gave to them a peace of mind in the midst of trials and persecutions, a peace they would experience with the coming of the Counselor, the Spirit. Remember that other title of Jesus in Isaiah 9? Wonderful Counselor. And he gives to them the Comforter, the Counselor, who will give them peace in all times. But how does this peace come about? How does this King actually bring about this peace? So look with me at the passage that we began with today in Colossians 1. Here's what we'll conclude our time this morning considering the Prince of Peace. Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20. The question is, how would this peace be accomplished and realized? How does the Prince of Peace actually make peace? And the answer is very clear and very simple. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the incarnation. And through him, this is how peace comes about. Through him, God is reconciling to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, here's how the Prince of Peace makes peace. In a most counterintuitive way, the Prince of Peace makes peace by dying at the hands of his oppressors and in one sense, at the hands of the very people, us, who need his peace. Colossians goes on and the rest of the New Testament goes on to explain how we are at enmity, how we are at odds with God, but yet in his love, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us so that we can have peace with God. As we look at these four texts, and I'm assuming that I'm speaking to primarily Christians here this morning, but if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would just appeal to you, hear the words of the prophets from Isaiah through the angels to Luke and to the words of Jesus himself and to Paul, and would you respond to the love that God has displayed through Christ? But for the believers who are here this morning, would you look at these four ideas of application as we conclude? We still are in a time of waiting and longing, aren't we? We know in one sense our objective standing with God, that we have been delivered, that we are at peace with God, but yet we still feel the tension and the burden and the weight and the oppression of sin and this fallen world around us. So we're encouraged by Paul in Romans that with all creation we continue to groan together as we await for the adoption, the full adoption as sons, which is the redemption, the final glorification of our bodies. So in Romans 8, verse 25, Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I know many of us here struggle and we wrestle through this indwelling sin and the difficulties of this life, whether the broken relationships because of sin or just in our own past choices. And we long for, we long, we, in fact, we plead with God, God, would you deliver me from this? And Romans 8, with his focus on the Spirit's dwelling with us, Paul cries out to us, wait patiently. It will come. And then we see that we are to continue to proclaim the good news. Just as the angels came and proclaimed the good news of peace to all who would hear. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul tells us that we are now ambassadors of Christ, proclaiming reconciliation and peace to all who will listen. Why? Because the light of God has shone in our hearts and awakened our lives to who He is. And now with this light of life penetrating our souls and penetrating our lives, we're supposed to go out into the world, into the darkness, and be ambassadors of reconciliation, not proclaiming ourselves, but proclaiming the one who called us from darkness to light. The third point is this. Just as Jesus told his disciples, don't fear. Don't lose heart. There is nothing to fear in this life. There's nothing to fear outside or within. So live life boldly, knowing you have peace with God. 
and knowing that you have the comforter dwelling in you and with you. Don't lose heart. Second Corinthians 4. Therefore, do we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. So we fix our eyes, not on what's seen, but is what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And finally, we're encouraged to rejoice, right? Just like the shepherds, the angels say to them, don't fear, but rejoice. They were full of great fear, and they say, no, no, turn that great fear into great joy. Why? Because we have been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ on the cross. Colossians 1, verse 13, if you're still there, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we give thanks to the Father with joy. See, this time of Advent, this Christmas season, is about giving thanks. It's not just Thanksgiving Day and that week of Thanksgiving or the month of November, but the entire Advent season, the entire Christmas season is about giving thanks to God who has delivered us from the power of and oppression of our sin. Let me read for you just a brief poem entitled, God With Us. In fact, if you would like to look this up sometime, I would encourage you to do so. It's called, God With Us, written by Isaac Wimberly. Here's what he writes, capturing this story of God's Redemption for us. The people had read of this rescue that was coming through the bloodline of Abraham. They had seen where Micah proclaimed about a ruler to be born in Bethlehem. Daniel prophesied about the restoration of Jerusalem. And Isaiah's cry about the Son of God coming to them. So for them, it was anticipation. This groaning was growing generation after generation, knowing that God was holy, no matter what the situation, but they longed for him. They yearned for him. They waited for him on the edge of their seat, on the edge of where excitement and containment meet. They waited. Like a child who watches out the window for their father to return from work, they waited. Like a groom stares back at the double doors at the back of the church, they waited. And in their waiting, they had hope. Hope that was fully pledged to a God they had not seen To a God who had promised a king, a king who would reign over the enemy, over Satan's tyranny, they waited. And so it was, centuries of expectations with various combinations of differing schools of thought. Some people expecting a political king who would rise to the throne through the wars that he fought. While others, expecting a priest who would restore peace through the penetration of the Pharisees' facade. Yet, a baby, 100% human, 100% God. So the Word became flesh and was here to dwell among us. In His fullness, grace upon grace, Jesus, you see through Him and for Him, and all things were created, and in Him all things are sustained. God had made Himself known for the glory of His name. 
And this child would one day rise as king, but it would not be by the sword or an insurgent regime. It would be by his life, a life that would revolutionize everything the world knew. He would endure temptation and persecution, all while staying true, humbly healing the broken, the sick, and the hurting too, ministering reconciliation, turning the old to new. A life that would be the very definition of what life really costs saying to you, if you desire life, then your current one must be lost. And he would portray that with his own life. As his father would pour out and exhaust, and Jesus would be obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And so just 33 years after that day, the day he laid swaddled in the hay, he hung on a tree suffocating, dying in our place absorbing wrath that is rightly ours, but we can never bear the weight. And so he took the punishment, and he put it in the grave, and he died. And when I say that he died, I, I mean that he really died. No breath, no heartbeat, no sign of life. You see, God is a God of justice, and the penalty for our sin equals death. And that's what Christ did on the cross. And then just three days later, in accordance with the scripture, he was raised from the grave. And when I say that he was raised, what I mean is that he was raised. Lungs breathing, heart pumping, blood pulsing through his veins. The things that he promised were true. He is the risen son of God offering life to me and to you. He turns our mourning into dancing, our weeping into laughing, our sadness into joy. By his mercy we are called his own. By his grace will never be left alone. By his love, he is preparing our home. And by his blood, we can sing before his throne. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So now we, as his bride, are the ones waiting. Like the saints that came before, we're anticipating he has shown us that this world is fading and he has caused our desires to be for him. And so church, stay ready. Keep your heart focused and your eyes steady. Worship him freely, never forgetting his great love for you. Emmanuel is God with us.